Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Before we dive into the show, I wanted to share that most of the season was recorded before the conflict in Ukraine broke out. I believe in using my platform to spread awareness and information for those who can't, and that extends to this show. While none of the conversations you'll hear this season will address what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, I hope they can be a source of inspiration and motivation for you to go out and pursue the causes you're passionate about. Find what ignites a fire inside you and get involved. We can all play a part in making this world a little bit more just. My art is activism, but me being like Amanda, the activist, is different. If you're a Black woman and you're conscious, you are naturally going to be angry. I took an Uber here and the driver said, (laughs) I think we can all agree. Donald Trump looks great for his age. I got concerned because a blind man was driving this car. I don't own the title of activist. I have disassociated myself with it. Well, how do you define activist? Let's start there. People kept being like, oh, you handled that so calmly. And and I was like, fuck that. (laughs) I I wish I could have had a dashiki and an afro and turn that mother out. Welcome, everyone. I'm Aisha Sasei, and you're listening to The Accidental Activist, the show where we discover the sparks that ignite people's passion to change the world. On this week's show, Amanda Seals is bringing the fire and the funny. Amanda is many things. You probably know her as Tiffany on the acclaimed HBO series Insecure, or from her stand-up special, I Be Knowing. Or you may be one of a million people who follow her on Instagram, where she describes herself as an intentional agitator. She's part actress, part comedian, part entrepreneur, and a whole lot of a philosophical agitator. And that last part is why I really wanted to have Amanda on my show, because she's always making me think about things in a totally new way. Also, we're both passionate lovers of language, And heading into this conversation, I wanted to understand how Amanda discovered that oh-so-rare talent of successfully using comedy as a form of activism. I should also add that Amanda and I could talk the hind legs off a donkey. Hope you enjoy the show. Amanda Seals, welcome to The Accidental Activist. Thank you for having me. It is good to have you here. I think what I'm struck by with you is how much of what you do, and I think your superpower is language and the way you use words. And I'm wondering, when was it in life that you first realized that you had a gift for language and a turn of phrase? I don't ever think I was kind of intentionally seeking these things out because I felt like I had a a gift if it gift right it was more so like i just i enjoyed it and i felt 
prolific in those spaces and language. And I guess to be very, very honest, once I kind of started very rapidly ascending within the spoken word space, that was probably like the first time that I was like, oh, I think I'm like good at this. Um, And then also once I had perfected my process in writing poetry to the point where it's like, you know, if you need me to write a poem, I mean, I can do it. Wow. In comedy specifically, I hadn't kind of transferred that sense of ability to tr- to comedy. And it was another comic who had one day told me, like, you know, your your gift with comedy is telling stories and and the and the words that you use to do so. And I was like, what do you mean? And they were like, well, one, like you're a really good storyteller and you have very unique stories to tell. But two, you have a vocabulary that is so far like beyond what most folks are using on stage that that also informs your style. And I had not really like acknowledged that. But then once he pointed it out, it became something that I really leaned into. You tested as gifted yeah. when you when you were young. So clearly you know, intellect is, is, is woven into your DNA. In your home situation, um, was language embraced? Was it, was it nurtured? Because my mother's a linguist. My mother was uh, an academic who focused on English language and literature. So I grew up in a home where language was in, incredibly um, policed, let's just say. <laughs> you know, my mom is from Grenada and she was always just very, very into literature and you know I was Keats was being quoted around me and you know we are a Shakespearean household every March 15th without fail we have to no say way. the eyes of March have come <laughs> but not yet gone Caesar and we all try and beat each other to the punch in saying it but yes to answer your question language has always been a, a, like a supremely important part of my upbringing and you know it was something that I used to get teased about a lot. Same here. Same here. Very much so. Other other kids my age. Well, also because I think I became, I think I might have been obnoxious with it myself, to be honest, as a child. So I grew up in Sierra Leone in West Africa. And, you know, we speak um, a Creole. I wasn't allowed to speak Creole, uh, you know, which is, you know, the lingua franca that everyone is speaking. And other kids just didn't appreciate it. And I think I was a little bit obnoxious about it. And I'd be like, you're, you're not, no, you can't say thank you. You have to say thank you. And get the kids who were just like, oh, here she is. <laughs> yes, I know that story. <laughs> <laughs> I distinctly remember being on the playground at last elementary school and Nikea loud saying to me, you just think you're an encyclopedia. <laughs> me in my head, like me outwardly being like, no, I'm not. But in my head being like, what's the issue? Same, same. When you are nurtured in that kind of environment and encouraged to expand your vocabulary and to use your voice as a child, it's seen as being precocious and they don't mean it in that cute pigtailed way. It's like kind of stepping out of boundaries. And I think at least certainly in my experience from a, from a black home, it was just like, oh, this child is precocious. And I'm wondering, I, I remember the day somebody said that to me. I was outside playing and a friend's mother said, aren't you a precocious one? And I didn't even know what the word meant, but I knew it wasn't a good thing. And I'm wondering when you first realized exactly that people were maybe trying to, I think silence might be too strong a word, but certainly moderate you. Moderate. That's a good one. <sighs> um, 
in grade school, like, because my, I've had incredible educators, but they've also had some that were just dumb. <laughs> you know? Yep. And they would just say things that were just completely false. And then I just was never taught to sit back and watch someone say something that's false. And so then it became like Amanda's correcting me in front of the class. I know that story too. I know that story. I mean, that, that, that was an entire parent teacher conference with like the Dean and the guidance counselor. And at the end, and once this had finally come to the table, it was interesting because the only person in the room was a white woman was my teacher. And I, when I think back on the uniqueness of that particular scenario, where we were in Orlando, Florida, that somehow I found myself in a room with a black Dean, a black guidance counselor, my black mother, me, my black child, and this white woman. And everyone was like, so the issue is that she's right. Well, not that she's right, but that she's saying I'm wrong in front of everyone. And they were like, you know what? We can wrap it up here. Okay, let's everybody get back to work. Like, and I know that that is not a common scenario. Like, I was never taught to just blindly follow folks because of their position or because of their race or gender ever. Like, that was not how I was taught. So, you know, even as a grown ass woman, people get so frustrated with me because I just am like, say what to, to anyone? <laughs> I guess the, the best way, I'm just unimpressed. What you do today, coming from a home where language is police like mine, and, and now you, you write, you, you act, you produce, um, and you're an activist, the, you know, the multi-hyphenate label covers you. How do you rate those different titles? Like where does activists sit amongst all those different titles? I don't own the title of activist. I, I have dis, I have disassociated myself with it. Oh, tell me why. A couple reasons. I mean, one, I think that it's kind of become like oversaturated in its use. Um, well, how do you define activist? Let's start there. Let's go back to language. Well, I think at one point, you know, I would see an activist as somebody who is using their access to people to activate the people. Right. And which is different than an organizer, right? Which is someone who is like boots on the ground organizing. But the thing about it was that for a long time, like the ability to access the people was a lot less accessible, right? You had to have some type of uh, what the media base in order to do so. Whereas now, you know, with social media, et cetera, it's like anyone can kind of build a base. In doing so, I think a lot of people, you know, consider themselves influencers, right? And public, like public figures. And, and there's just so much more space for people to take up space and say like, this is my um, corner of the conversation. And within these spaces, I found myself saying, you know, the term activist at this point, I feel like is not something that, that is as rare. Like it should be expected that we are doing the things that we used to say activists did. All of us, if we have a space, 
if we have access to a platform, should be activating. But not everybody is. I, I, I know what you're... No, I you're... said should. So it's still rare. See, in my circle, it's not, right? Like, it, 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 and when I say circle, I just mean even like who I follow on social media, right? Like, it's just incredibly common to like, not necessarily be like, Le- like in on a soapbox, but you know, like come people, follow me. But no, but in terms of just like sharing information, and that on a basic note can activate people just because it activates consciousness. I, I think a couple of things that you said to un- unpack some of w- what you said, which I think was was incredibly interesting. First of all, there was a time where you said your art was your activism, so there was a time when you claimed it. Do you- My art is activism, but me being like Amanda, the activist is different. And when I say that my art is activism, it's that the intention and purpose of my art is to activate folks to create and to work. And at mm-hmm. this point, um, you know, when I speak of the purpose of my work, it's like I want it to have subversiveness I want it to have purpose and intention that is beyond just like oh you had a laugh so you know when I talk about my work as activism that is something that is important to me that my work is working beyond just the goal of making money I think there are a lot of people who are active Mm -hmm. right but they're not activists right they're active in the sense that you know, they share information, they, you know, they, they, they have a desire for change, but they're not um, committed and intentional. And what you're saying is valid. I mean, the reality is that these words are so flexible. Agreed. It's like feminist. I don't own the word feminist, but I live in what many would say within the space of feminism. Sure. You know, and so and when it comes to labels, I think that I've I kind of bob and weave around. So you do the work, but you don't take the label. Correct. I and and some and at some points I have taken the label. Mm-hmm. But then at certain points I felt uncomfortable. And it's not to say that I may not eventually be like, of you know, course. What, that I'm back. <laughs> I'm a back to with a capital with a capital A. Yeah, I mean, but in this space and time, particularly when we've seen such an eruption of consciousness and we've seen, you know, just the last year. um, So, so many folks, you know, taking to the streets and really just like pivoting in terms of their attention and their purpose and focus. I feel like there are folks who may consider themselves to be more so um, activists and me just active, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, you know, I'm, my days in the streets are done. I'm turning 40. I've done, like, I've, I've, I've been in the streets and I don't want to feel bad about that. <laughs> no, no, and, and nor, nor should you. Okay, full disclosure. Before this conversation with Amanda, I had no idea that she had such complicated feelings about the use of the label activist. She does raise some really interesting points, though, about the ways in which social media has expanded the space for people to be socially active. I agree. How usage of the term activist has become somewhat ubiquitous 
and she now feels that the common usage has somewhat devalued the term. Now, this, this is the point where we disagree. I truly love the fact that everyone wants to lay claim to the title activist. But when I think about it, I, I think that a lot of the time, most people are simply being active. Activism demands something more of an individual. When I think about it, to me, it means a level of sustained action, intentionality, and a commitment to achieving measurable results. Activism is not sometime maybe. What we really need in this world is way more activism to move the needle on progress. As season one of The Accidental Activist goes on, I want you to bear in mind what Amanda said about being an activist and the work of activism. And go ahead and compare her point of view to what you'll hear from my other guests when I ask them the very same question. You might need a pen and some paper. Just saying. Can you draw the line or, or trace the line when you realized that you wanted to intentionally speak up around issues of social justice and use your art as activism? Do you remember what was your trigger? I think, it, it, you know, it was kind of, it was always there. Like in my house, I mean, I grew up, so Grenada is a very, kind of, it's like a very revolutionary island. I mean, like we, we had like, three slave revolts. I mean, like then, you know, it's a part like of our culture to challenge and question and, you know, really just have a certain level of sauciness, uh, of spiciness, I should say, since we're the Isle of Spice um, about us. So that's part of like, kind of just the space I was raised in. And then, I mean, there was just an, an egregious amount of Bob, of Bob Marley that was being played in my home. <laughs> and like, and Peter Tosh and, you know, and so my mom was always contextualizing, you know, just the difference of their music compared to, say, Whitney Houston. Right. Like, you know, and and I've always been a bit of a critical thinker. So I think I at a young age was also able to determine, you know, like, oh, they're really like saying something in these songs and it has like a, a bigger purpose than just to make us dance, et cetera. So I think it was kind of just there. And for what it's worth. I've always been someone who was taught like on a very strong moral scale. So anything I was going to do was going to have that interwoven in it. And by nature of just someone being about fairness and challenging injustice, um, that seemed like just kind of like a natural part that was built into my identity. So therefore it became a natural part of like anything I was doing. So as early as I can remember, I mean, I was in school and I put together like a, a an ensemble acting piece from for colored girls who considered suicide when the rainbow was enough. And I had to do a research paper coincidentally at that time about Entazaki Shange. Mm -hmm. And so in doing that research paper and in further understanding just the um, inspiration for her work and, you know, all of those things, they, they, they shape a young mind. Right. And they and you start to realize that the things that you're working on and the texts that you're interested in aren't just about doing a monologue. Right. You know, they have deeper contexts. Also, in my sophomore year of high school, become immersed in like a group of actors in my school who were black American and who were from families that were very active and activists mm -hmm. and they really helped to also shape that sensibility 
um, you know, that peer group of, of black teenagers who were very conscious about black power and, you know, injustice and oppression and discrimination that really, you know, it could have gone another way, right? Like I could have been in a peer group of folks that were all about just partying and drinking, but yeah. But instead I was with a bunch of folks that were like, yo, have you read this Kwame Nkrumah, <laughs> you know? So, so I was very, very fortunate. And I, and I, I'm really like, I think I underestimate just how much that proximity to, um, you know, just other kids, other peers that had those interests, just how much that really has shaped me as an adult. So growing up around that, being um, sensitized to your own voice and your own power by your peer group within the home and, and, and beginning to speak out and, and, and speak up is something that you've always done. But as you've become more well-known, as you've become more famous, I'd imagine that, or you tell me, has the pushback to you using your voice in these issues grown? I can tell you the exact accidental activism point that took place in my life that completely pivoted me from simply a comedian slash actress slash producer who is an advocate to someone who people look to as an activator. Intentionally activated. Yes. Time for a quick break now. But stay tuned because when we come back, we're going back in time. All the way back to 2017, to the accidental moment, the one that sparked a personal revolution in Amanda's activism and brought her revolutionary voice to a whole new audience. All I can say is brace yourself. Plus, Amanda will also share her advice on how you can become a force for change back in a moment. The Accidental Activist is exclusively sponsored by our friends at Mercedes-Benz. Mercedes-Benz is an active supporter of gender equality and women's empowerment, starting from within. Nicolette Lombretz, Vice President and Managing Director of Mercedes-Benz Vans USA, and Diana DiPrio, Vice President of Customer Services, are just two examples of leading women who have pioneered their careers while advancing at the company. Nicolette joined Mercedes-Benz over 20 years ago as a graduate trainee, while Diana started out 30 years ago as a vehicle sales planner. Having worked their way up to top leadership roles at the company, they know just how important it is to be heard and the power of using your voice. Through mentorship programs and networks that foster trust and community, both Nicolette and Diana have become internal sponsors of diverse initiatives that support women in the automotive industry. Their efforts are part of a larger, ongoing commitment from the company towards gender equality. Thank you, Mercedes-Benz, for partnering with The Accidental Activist and for supporting those driving change. Hi, I'm Glory Adam, host of Well-Read Black Girl, Each week, I sit in close conversation with one of my favorite authors of color and share stories about how they found their voice, honed their craft, and navigated the publishing world and composed some of the most beautiful and meaningful words I've ever read. We journey together through the cultural moment where art, culture, and literature collide 
and pay homage to the women whose books we grew up reading. And of course, I check in with members of the Well-Read Black Girl Book Club. It's the literary kickback you never knew you needed. And you're all invited to join the club. So tell your friends to tell their friends so we can be friends who love books. Listen to Well-Read Black Girl on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Welcome back to The Accidental Activist, everyone, and part two of my interview with the irrepressible Amanda Seals. In this part of the conversation, we're getting to the heart of the matter, the moment that triggered a whole new trajectory in her journey to using her voice to challenge the status quo. This is the moment Amanda went from advocate to activator. But first, let's set the scene for you. June 17th. 2017, when I did a dinner with Katy Perry that Caitlyn Jenner was at. I remember. The reason I am so passionate, and I'm not hostile, I'm passionate. The reason I am so passionate is because I've had such a different experience in this country than you. Because as a black woman, the government is so much in my life. And it always has been. Like the government literally said that black men couldn't even be in the house or else women could not get welfare. And that's a big reason why there's such a chasm between black women and black men in this generation. So I think that there's just a lot to understand for like why people are talking the way they're talking about different things. I understand why you're talking the way you're talking. Cause I know, cause, I, because- I, I just don't understand what am I talking? I just said, I believe in this country. Yes, and you, you can say that in a way that I cannot because you've had a different experience because this country is here for you. This country ain't here for me in the same way, sis. It isn't you know, very politely gathered her in her ignorance. and Politely and precisely. Precisely, yes. That was by who? By hook or by crook? Because there were at least six points previous to that uh, moment where I wanted to explode at that dinner. And, you know, and I, I, and I like got revved up and then got shut down. <laughs> and because like Van Jones was the moderator but you know he was kind of just like giving everyone at the table you know their chance to speak and whatnot and then when it would get to me i'd be like you know (laughs) and every time it would get to me i'd just be like you know um and i was purposely brought to this dinner for this purpose like they had specifically said we want you to come because we feel like if we don't have someone like you everyone is simply going to just be polite whether they agree or disagree and that's not the point And so by this point in the dinner, I was like, you got (sighs) to. What was your internal conversation? What were you telling? Because I'm always fascinated. I was squeezing my nails into my hand to quell my rage at the level of idiocy that was being presented by Caitlyn Jenner in defense of Donald J. Trump being a good president and a good person. So I was having to like really just deep breath. I have since learned a technique where when people are speaking hot air, you simply breathe it in and breathe it back to them. (laughs) And so like I, that has become an incredible tool. Like while someone's talking, you're just like, (sighs) and you breathe that right back and you just let it flow through you. And, um, and by that point of the dinner, I said to myself, you know, don't let these people rile you up. You just can't, you just can't let her get you off your square. So you need to just 
say this in a very clear fashion so you can just get this done. Um, and, and I will say too, in my maturity since that point and in my elevation and in my growth since that point, I've also just become a lot better at kind of just not getting riled up. I mean, I have rage and I feel like I've, I've done a lot of work to refine that rage and to expel the, you want to refine the righteous rage and expel the, indig- the indignant. Right. Right. I was going to say, don't you think that black women are too often denied the right to be angry? I literally think we are always denied the right to be angry and we do it to each other as well, you know, and it's, it's not healthy. But to your point, after that Caitlyn Jenner thing, people kept being like, oh, you handled that so calmly and so um, with such poise. And I was like, fuck that. (laughs) I I wish I could have had a dashiki and an afro and turned that mother out. I should have flipped the damn table. Shit. And tell me your thinking after that moment when it took on this seismic importance and more people started looking to you. Tell me about your thinking then. It was literally overnight. And, it, and to this day, I don't know who cut that clip. Katy Perry was doing this promotion for her, her album Witness. And, and she was doing like this three-day Big Brother house for YouTube. And so people were coming over for dinners each day. And then the last night, it was a dinner of discourse where she wanted to bring people in to have a dinner because that are from different like walks of life and different points of view because she and her parents had voted differently on the election Mm -hmm. and she didn't feel like she could go home for Thanksgiving and she didn't know like how they were going to handle that. So she was like, you know, this could be an exercise for my fans to see how do you handle having differences of opinions with people that you're at the table with. So I was calling in to do this and be a part of this dinner. And, you know, like it was a thing that was happening live and that they were not going to just house. Like we signed agreements that they couldn't just keep this because we were doing it for free. So they couldn't just keep it on YouTube. You know, it was like a one shot deal. So whoever ripped that clip did it in real time. Wow. And they put it on YouTube. And when I was driving home from the dinner, um, I was I was. In the car service, I remember in the back seat and someone sent me a tweet and was like, oh my God, girl, this is crazy. You really? And I was like, oh, wow. Like I just did this 20 minutes ago. And did you think, oh my God, I'm glad it's out there. Did you think, oh, what comes next? I didn't think any of those things because I just kind of thought it was one of those like in the moment things. And it was like, oh, wow, the people did watch. (laughs) And like, I went to bed and I woke up the next day with 44,000 new followers on Instagram and was like, what's happening? And then it was on like Buzzfeed and it just like overnight became this like conversation piece. And then I had all of these people that were in my DMs that were people that I looked up to peers and veterans, you know, in the game that were sending me messages like you better tell her, you better show her. And it started just getting shared. And I just saw it just like, ping-ponging and then I had to host the red carpet of the BET Awards that weekend and it was just like beyond my scope of comprehension how much reverence people were giving me based on this clip but in that moment I feel like is when a lot of people realize oh she different because she'll say what needs to be said regardless of the scenario and I think the same thing happened when I left the real and can you talk a little bit about that? Because that was, again, about voice and and not 
wanting, as I've read, black women just not being given space, you know? We weren't being given space. We weren't being given... We weren't even being given the trust of knowing our own experience and our fan base's experience to be able to speak to it. So, you know, the producers were not, none of the producers on the show were black women. None of the producers in power were black women. You know, and so it was like, and not only were they not black women, they weren't women of color. And so like, there were like all of these working parts going on behind the scenes that in essence, devalued and depreciated and and disparaged like the voices of all of these women who are on television representing this show and, and for what it's worth, you know, kind of speaking to their unique experiences within their ethnic base, right? Because you have like Jeannie Mai, who's Vietnamese, but then you had Adrian Bailon, who's like a New Yorican, you know? And so like, I couldn't stay there because it was simply just inauthentic. I mean, there was just no... There was there was no version of me being there um, unless major changes were made that felt good to my soul. And so you left, but social media has become this more than a platform. It's become this space that you very much made your own where you, you can speak unfiltered, unmoderated, unpoliced. How do you choose what you choose to speak out about? And when you when you speak, what's the intention? Well, the rule of thumb for my videos is that it always has to be either positive and funny, enlightening and funny, or informative and funny. Right. How do you shoot them? I was just looking as I was watching your turn turn on the comments. Shout <laughs> <laughs> out to all the white celebrities. You see, I turned off my comments because I got tired of arguing with racists. But you know what? It's your turn. Turn on the comments. Let them talk to you. Yeah, I just shoot it with my phone and I edit it. It brings so much joy. Thank you. I mean, listen, I, I, I'm at a point now where I, I I do want my own show and I should have my own show and I I will speak that until it happens. Absolutely. Um, and I have my podcast and I get to speak, you know, on my podcast, but my podcast is more about self-care and self-wellness. And I want to have a show where I'm able to literally speak about whatever the hell I want to speak about. Do you, have you worried at any point or have you been worried at any point that speaking out will impact your work and your ability to work? Only in speaking out about things that I don't know about. That's the only time that I would have that concern. And that's why I don't do it. And so people will urge me to speak about things and to promote things and to get behind things that I just simply don't know enough about to, to earnestly do. And, um, and then they feel some type of way, you know, when I don't, and it's just like, it's incredibly difficult. And so I don't, I don't put that weight on myself. And what I try to do then is to share information that is coming from sources that I feel like are about information sharing and not about emotion sharing, right? not about um, propaganda sharing. 
I wonder, so I have a not-for-profit that works with adolescent girls in Sierra Leone, and um, I came into the activism space while I was already a journalist at CNN, and I covered the Nigerian schoolgirls and just started doing just the the abduction of, of the 276 girls in 2014, and maybe that was the real turning point for me, and I've stayed on that path and all now I work with the UN and blah, blah, blah. But what I found is to me, and I'm, I'm interested in your, your perspective here. It's, it's a difficult road. Doing this kind of work is incredibly difficult. I found myself, you know, with my own not-for-profit, with all that that comes with funding and helping people understand that black girls' lives matter and and investing in the lives of African girls' lives matter can be so hard that I've just laid on the floor and just bawled my eyes out. And I'm just wondering about you, what what the journey has been like for you. I mean, I've, I've shared similar feelings and frustrations and um, disenchantments. For me, it's, you know... I've ended up having to just kind of create this thesis statement that the art is first. And that kind of is what I end up always circling myself back to. You know, I know that I am here for the purpose of creating. And that sometimes feels like it's not enough. It's like, no, you need to create a nonprofit. And and then I'm like, you're not going to be good at it. I do not tell anyone to run out and do that. So I do not tell anyone. You're not going to be good at it. So it's like, how do you then, how do you then utilize, you know, and properly position the passion that you do have to be able to empower those who that is what they're good at. And that is where their passions lie. I have definitely at moments more often than I'd like to admit you know, said to myself, like, I just need to, I need to hurry up. I need to hurry up with my, with my success and with my wealth. I need to hurry up so that I can really be more helpful. I know that feeling. I have that conversation every day with myself, you know, because then I'll be like, no, maybe you need to be giving more money. It's like, well, you, you know, you don't really, you don't really got money like that. <laughs> you ain't got Oprah money. And so I've had to kind of just, I want, I don't want to say let myself off the hook, but just kind of be realistic with myself, right? I'm going to hit pause here. Can I just say how much I love Amanda's accidental activist moment? I really identified with how in that moment with Caitlyn Jenner, she was just speaking out with authentic passion about issues of race and equity. And just like her, when I started advocating for women and girls, I too thought that it was just a series of moments That was until the encouragement of others made it into a mission. It's so important to me on this show that you don't just tune in and have a good time. Don't get me wrong. I really want you to have a good time. But I also want to give you information that will inspire you, that you can use to help move from the sidelines to the front lines of the fight for change. And with that in mind, I always ask my guests for their two cents. Here's Amanda's take. What would you say to the people listening to this conversation who want to move beyond active to being an activist, but they aren't sure where to start? Well, you need to start with, in my opinion, you start with where does your real passion lie? Because it's what 
is something that even on your most tired, most hungry, most frustrated day, you're still going to prioritize and give a fuck about, you know, Mm -hmm. listen, breast cancer awareness is incredibly important, but on my most tired, most hungry, most frustrated day is, is breast cancer awareness at the top of my mind for advocacy. No. It's just, it's not, it's not going to get you off the couch when you have to. I am so thankful that there are so many people who will get off the couch. Right. Right. But, but every time I see another black person being unjustly lynched by the police, you know, literally or figuratively, I'm, I want to get off the couch. Right. And even if I feel like I don't have the strength to, I know that I, <laughs> I know that if I need to, I can't like, I, there's like a, a reserve, you know? And, I, and, and so I think that that's where you start. You start with what's the thing. What is that thing? You know, for some people it's, it's, um, you know, wildlife conservation for some people, it is, you know, protecting art, um, in schools, for some people, it is educating. It, there is so much fucked up with this world. Absolutely. There's so much to do. You could literally be like, you know, I just love bees, man. I just want to protect bees. You know, I just, I feel like I, for so long, didn't realize just like how wide open the nonprofit space is. I mean, I donate monthly to a Vietnamese foundation for saving moon and sun bears. Okay. <laughs> I love animals. I donate monthly to Lola Yabonobo, which is a conservation effort in the Congo, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is the only place in the world where bonobos live that rehabs, that saves and rehabs bonobos which are basically like the nice version of chimpanzees. <laughs> and like, am I getting up off the couch to save bonobos? Probably not, but I love them enough to be like, here's my $25 though. And that can go a long way for this little bonobo. Um, and so sometimes you have to kind of do that balance with yourself too. Cause you only have so much that you can give. And like, then like your little world sometimes needs just as much saving as this big world. And sometimes you got to know that like right now, I don't got the bandwidth for the big world. I got to just focus on my little world. And sometimes your little world is just you. Yeah. And that's the other thing that you have to give your permission, yourself permission to work on sometimes. It's like, I know we got to get these plastic bottles out these turtles mouths, but I got to get out this depression first. Yes. You got to say, and maybe it's the getting the plastic out the turtle's mouth might get you out of depression. <laughs> it's the it's the plane putting the mask on yourself first. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. But again, I have to stress that it's not just about like I need to get out here and help because you will burn out and then you will not be of any use. So it's like be thoughtful about it and be patient about identifying where you think your energies can best be served. And first, that's going to be with where your interest most deeply lies. And you know what? You might find that you get into that space and you and it is so frustrating that you're like, oh, it's too close to home. Yeah. You know, like when I worked at The Gap, 
What happened to the gap? I just had to, I was like, I just love the gap too much. This place is making me hate the gap. I, I can't work here. <laughs> As we bring this conversation to a close, because um, you, you, your podcast, Small Doses, and as you mentioned, you know, you talk about wellness and, and you know, it's different from your, I don't know if it is different from your IG, but, it, you know, it's, it's rooted in wellness. So I want to leave you with opportunity to share with our listeners just what, you know, anyone who's going down this road, um, and this is a difficult time with the pandemic, we're not out of this yet. What do you say to people around self-care? What do you say to boundaries? Oh, that was quick. Boundaries. Boundaries is like a buzzword. I feel at this point that a lot of people are kind of like just now really. Just like balance? Oh, no. Yeah. Or, or having it all. Having it all. Having it all. How do you have it all? The thing about boundaries is that I think we have been trained, particularly women, to think that we don't have a right to them. Um, and that, and, and so, you know, and depending on what walk of life you're in or what position of life you're in, you know, people have dictated what boundaries you get to have. So, for instance, like me being a public figure, people were like, well, you don't get to create boundaries around who gets to speak to you about you. Um, and it's like, yes, I do. Guess what? I'm turning off the comments. Um, and so I had, I had like turned off the comments on my Instagram page for a year and people were just like, how? And I was like, because I'm done with the abuse. Right. But it, on the flip side of things, you know, the boundaries are important, particularly in doing nonprofit work, I believe, and doing activist work and organizer work, et cetera, in terms of managing your heart. Right. Because you're doing work that is so attached to your worth and to your soul. And so if you don't create a certain level of boundaries and those boundaries can be created by like your managing of expectations, you know, by giving yourself breaks, um, you know, people think that they were marching in the civil rights movement like every day. And they're like, no, like we had to take breaks. And they're like, also niggas had to work. They're like, what are you, <laughs> like we had jobs. <laughs> like, you know, what I mean? we were marching on Saturdays and Sundays because we had to work on Monday. Those boundaries, those those things, people think that they that they that people get feel like guilty. We are not robots, and we're not Jesus. We're not, and and who and and many would say that they don't even know that Jesus was Jesus. So <laughs> you know, the truth of the matter is, we are flesh and bone, and. We just don't have the capabilities to, to, to be endless in our efforts. So we need time to revive and revitalize. Amanda Seals, what a great place to, to leave the conversation. Like you said, it's all about boundaries and intentionality and, and finding where your passions lie and going with that. Such a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your, your love of language with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really think it bears repeating because I believe that what Amanda said is so true. We are the ones that we are waiting for. Don't sit there discounting yourself. If there's an issue that you're passionate about changing, you do it. The key to staying the course is being passionate about what you choose to fight for and getting started at the level that works for where you're at. Remember, 
Activism comes in different shapes and sizes. It doesn't have to take the form of marching in the streets or starting a not-for-profit organization. I've got one of those. People, believe me when I say it is not for the faint of heart. And one last thought I want to leave you with. Don't get hung up on what you call yourself. Whether you reject the label of activist as Amanda does at present or wholeheartedly embrace it like I do, by far, by far, the most important thing is being thoughtful about the work, setting yourself some goals and being consistent. So let me ask you this. What are you waiting for? Thank you so much for listening. Please take time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Follow me at Aisha Sasay on Twitter and on Instagram at I am Aisha Sasay. The Accidental Activist is a Wonder Media Network production in partnership with Arella Productions. Executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Aisha Sasay. Our producer is Brittany Martinez and the production assistant is Taylor Williamson. Until the next time, take care, everyone. and Bye for now. Before you go, be sure to check out the resources in the show notes for how you can get involved and stay informed on what's going on in Ukraine. No action is too big or small with a crisis of this magnitude.